So 2009, um, I started working at a church in Richmond, BC. I've mentioned it a couple times, and uh, there was a lot of great things about that season in my life in Richmond. Uh, I, I was cutting my teeth learning about my calling into ministry, into youth pastoring, into young adult pastoring. And uh, at the same time that it was a great season, it was also some of the hardest years of mine and my wife Nicole's life. We were not only starting a family, but at the same time, uh, I felt like God was calling me to leave my part-time job uh, at the bank, the Royal Bank, and to go into ministry full-time, uh, knowing that this church couldn't fully support me. Uh, it was totally a risk of uh, step of faith, a risk of faith, if you will, uh, but I had faith that God was going to provide. And as I started working at this church, I just decided that uh, you know, I was a little naive, but I was just going to put my head down, work super hard, and just prove to them that, you know, I was worth whatever they had to pay me, right? And so I started part-time and everything was going great, but I just found that as responsibility increased, as they moved me to become the associate pastor, um, pay didn't increase as those responsibilities increased. Let me put it like that. And it was some crazy, crazy weeks where sometimes I would, I remember this one weekend, I took the youth group down to Seattle for a youth conference on a Thursday. And it was like two, three days full of just being with teenagers, right? It was great. It was fun. It was tiring. But I also was in charge of setting up the church on Sunday, uh, Saturday nights because we met in a gym. So right from that youth conference, I remember driving back from Seattle and going straight to the gym on Saturday night, even before going out to see my wife and setting up, waking up in the morning and doing church uh, all over again. And I remember in those moments, like, this is what ministry is. This, that's what I told myself, right? Growing up as a missionary kid, I knew like you don't get into ministry for the money, right? So I'm like, this is what it is. It's sacrifice, right? That's what I would tell myself. Well, that all came to a head one day when I stumbled across the church budget on a table in the office. And I don't know why, but for the three and a half years that I worked there, I was never presented the budget. I never saw the budget. I never cared to ask, again, my naiveness. And as I looked over the budget, right, I was trying to make sense of all the numbers. But one thing that made real clear sense to me was when I looked at the salary, I soon found out for the first time that the senior pastor, lead pastor at the time, was making well over 100K while I was just getting paid about, I think, $12.50 an hour. The injustice that I felt in that moment, let me tell you. The questions that I had where I knew that this wasn't a poor church. This was a church of 200 plus people. Uh, the people on the board were rich people. I knew this to be a fact because of the houses they owned in Tawasin or Ladner or Richmond and the jobs that they had. I knew that they knew that me and my wife, we sacrificed the rent of our apartment, moved in with her parents, and that some days, some weeks, we struggled to buy groceries. I knew that they knew that. And thanks to the generosity of my wife's parents, there was always food on the table. But knowing the situation that me and at the time my two boys were in, I couldn't comprehend that this is how Christians act. This is how Christians treat each other. This is how Christians um, provide for one another's needs when it comes to the everyday needs of a human's life. And questions came about 
uh, the, the weeks after I saw that budget where I would go into the morning doing my devotions, getting on my knees in prayer and asking God, like, how can you allow this to happen? Don't you know that I need these certain things to live? Don't you see my situation? Right? God, why are you allowing me to suffer in this way? Why are you allowing these people to treat me unjustly, exploit me in this way? These are normal questions that we ask as human beings going through any kind of suffering, right? God, where are you? Why aren't you intervening in my situation? Why aren't you answering my prayer? The situation that I just described to you is similar to the situation we find the people that James is writing to in, right? As Dan read last week, they're being exploited by the rich, right? The rich people in their own community. And I believe that this, these are some of the questions that they themselves were probably praying and asking God. Why? Because it's how James tries to encourage them when he moves from his attention from the rich to the poor, from the oppressors to the oppressed. And he writes this in James 5, 7. Again, his counsel, like throughout this book, it's direct, it's practical. When he says, be patient, then brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord the Lord's coming is near. It's immediately apparent, right, when you read this, what our response should not be, what their response should not be. Their response should not be to band together to overthrow the rich, right? Their response should not be to some, about, uh, some way take things, matters into their own hands, right? And resort to violence against their oppressors and overthrow them in order to achieve justice. James' call is not a call for revolution, but one of patience. And to us in this culture, you know, it's hard for us to get this sometimes. I think patience in, in, in and of itself in our culture is being eradicated. Why do I say that? Simple illustration is just technology in general, right? The thing, about you could, uh, the thing you could say about technology or innovation in general in our time is that better is faster, right? Whatever comes out, whatever is out there, like the new iPhone or whatever gadget it is that you use, right? Every time a new itineration of it comes out, what is it? The main thing is it's faster, right? Technology is eradicating our need to be patient in our culture, right? Just take fast food, for instance, right? The drive-thru is not fast enough for us, right? Now we have an app where before you go to the establishment that you like to visit, you can order your drink or your food or whatever so you don't have to wait in line and just show up, pick up, and go home, right? Everything in our culture is working to eradicate our need for patience in this world. So what is patience? Well, one pastor puts it like this, patience that James is calling for us to show in context of suffering is this. It's an ability to face trouble without blowing up or hitting out. Its opposite is resentment towards God and others. 
It's counterfeit. Get this, or is cynicism or a lack of care, meaning uh, that this is too small to care about. That is what James is saying when he uses this word patience. He's asking us to show uh, uh, this ability to face trouble without blowing up or hitting out. But here's the question, why? Why the call to patience, right? Like what is the basis of this call to patience? Well, for one thing, these could be fellow Christians, as Dan said last week, that are oppressing them, that are the rich people that are exploiting them. So first and foremost, as followers of Jesus, we show each other grace. We don't act in vengeance. But the other thing that is going on here that is super clear is this call to patience flows out of his argument from verse 4 and 5 that we just read last week when Dan was preaching. Patience is the application of verse 4 and 5. Why? Because as you can read it for yourself later today, my paraphrase is because God hears the cries of the people. He hears your prayers in the midst of your suffering. He hears the cries of the people. And the second thing it says is the day of judgment is coming. James' rationale is clear. But in times of injustice or, or suffering of any kind, like I said, it's easy to wonder, right? It's easy to ask the question, God, why aren't you doing something about my situation in the here and the now? God, why haven't you noticed my situation? But what James is trying to get us to understand is that he knows, he cares, and he is intervening. James, I believe, knowing this, is doing two things. He, he ties the command of patience with a simple illustration of the farmer. But he also ties this call to patience with these words, to the Lord's coming. We're talking about the second coming of Jesus to set all things right in the world. More about that in a minute. But first, the illustration that he gives us, it's a beautiful illustration. It would have made perfect sense back then to these first audience, this first Jewish audience that he was writing to, right? He says, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Simple analogy. But tons working underneath the surface of what James is trying to say here. It works on so many different levels, right? We all know, right? No matter what culture you live in, that when it comes to growing things, you need water. And in this culture, the main source of water that they received to grow their crops was rain. And in this example, patience, the example of patience is given to the farmer patiently waiting for the rain to come, but also patiently waiting for the growth to take place underneath the surface of the soil. And although he can't see the growth with his own eyes, he knows that things are happening. He knows that things are growing, that something is taking root, that one day will bear fruit that he can see, feel, and taste. In the same way in our suffering, just because we don't see God doing something doesn't mean he's not working. Doesn't mean he's not intervening. intervening. In the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the trouble that we are facing, he's doing something in our hearts and our minds. He's growing us underneath the surface spiritually in our souls. 
that's leading to personal transformation. Even if we don't see something on the outside, even if we don't get an answer to our prayers in the natural, in the midst of our suffering, doesn't mean in the unseen supernatural realm that is all around us, God is not fighting for justice on our behalf. That he's not moving, that he's not intervening, that he's not moving things forward to him coming again. To where we'll all experience our ultimate healing. Where all the injustices of this world will be undone. Where all those things, those conflicts in their relationships, whatever whatever it'll be, would bring about reconciliation. Listen, I said this before, but in order for us to have a right perspective when it comes to the suffering that we will endure in this lifetime, no matter who you are, if you're a Jesus follower or not, this life is hard, plain and simple. But as Jesus followers, we always have to look at our suffering through the lens of the gospel. Knowing that starting in Genesis, we realize suffering doesn't come from God, but is the result of the fallen evil world we live in, right? You read Genesis 1 to 3, and you will quickly find out that God made the world and he made it good. Void of sin, void of suffering and evil. But Adam and Eve, instead of trusting God, tried to become like God by eating the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And the consequences of that action is they leave paradise. They exit paradise. And as soon as they exit the Garden of Eden, they enter into a world full of suffering and evil, infected by sin. Hence, as humans, as we live out this life on this earth, we will come across things that are affected by sin. Our climate is affected by sin, evil, suffering, injustice. It's all around us. But this was never in God's original plan and creation. God hates the pain and the troubles of this life, the trials that us human beings have to endure and experience. It grieves his heart just as it should grieve ours. When we see injustice in this world, it should grieve our hearts just as it grieves our Heavenly Father's heart. When he sees his children suffer, when they are treated poorly, when they're exploited, and like a good father, who can't stand by and watch his children suffer. He did something about it. In fact, he, he put on flesh and bud. He came down to this earth to deal with sin, the source of our suffering himself through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And in that, when it comes to the question, why aren't you intervening, God? We know that the answer is he did intervene. He is intervening right now in this moment and he will intervene in the future when he comes back and renews all things. When he deals with evil and suffering once and for all, James is reminding every Jesus follower that reads this book of this reality we live in right now. When he, he bookends this analogy with these words, until the Lord's coming and ends verse eight with this, because the Lord's coming is near. Just like the farmer waits for the two rains, right? The autumn rain and the spring rains. So we as Christians, we live our lives between two events. This is the eschatological framework James is presenting to us. Eschatology is simply the Christian teaching about the last things. Heaven, hell, death, judgment, the second coming of Christ, and the kingdom of God. 
eschatology is about the future, but is also about the present. Sometimes we forget about that as Christians, don't we, right? Sometimes we love to talk about what is coming in the future, and that's great, but it's also about the present. Eschatology is also about the present. As one African theologian said, for the doctrine of Christian eschatology is not meant to be merely information about the future. It's meant to be a lively conversation about the end of things, the end that is toward which all our present life is lived. Eschatology is about the telos. Remember that word? This is a word that James loves to use throughout this book over and over again. And what it means is telos means the goal, the purpose, everything that we're living our lives towards. And he says, this theologian, to which all economics and politics indeed all our plans and activities are directed. Eschatology is not a belief or a set of beliefs about the future. It's a posture with which we live our lives now. Patience in suffering is how we live out that belief now. Patience in suffering is how you know that that belief has actually taken root in your heart, that you actually believe that. You're living with that posture towards those future things. And when you live out patiently in the midst of your suffering, you know that you believe with all your heart that God's going to come back and make all things new. And knowing this, reminding yourself of this is what makes patience possible, is is what James is saying. Because this is what James wants us to get. When you know The end, you can endure the present. When you know the end, you can endure the present. When you know what is coming, you can endure the present. You can stand firm in your faith as James is encouraging all of us to do. Friends, this morning, when it comes to following Jesus, if you're facing suffering of any kind, I need you to ask yourself this. Do you believe this this morning? Are you holding on to this truth? Are you standing on this promise? Do you believe that it's this this reality? We're living into it right now. It should be as real to you as the shirt on your back or the, the chair that you are sitting on. See this word near that James uses in the original language, right? When he says that the Lord is coming near, right? It means immediacy. And there's been tons of debate by scholars and Bible interpreters of, of, of the belief of these New Testament people, right? Did they, they believe that Jesus was going to come like immediately? But most scholars say that in, in order to understand what James is saying here, this is how you need to understand this word, Christ's return is near, this word near. It, it means that it's not the same as saying that his return will definitely be very soon. Nearness is not necessarily immediacy. But a better way to understand it is nearness means that little now stands in the way before it comes to fulfillment. Little does stand before uh, it comes to fulfillment. Jesus uses the same word near when he shows up on the scene in Mark 1.15 and says, The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus is the inauguration of this reality, the reality of the kingdom of God, the reality that we can experience in the here and the now because of the Holy Spirit that's been given to us.
It's through the Holy Spirit that we experience his presence with us. It's through the Holy Spirit that we can taste and see that God is good, that the kingdom is breaking in now. But Jesus is also the guarantee that this future that James is talking about is imminent. In Jesus, the event has already started. Do you realize that? In Jesus, the event has already started. And living in this Christian life out now is trusting this. Richard Mao put it like this. The Christian life is all about trust in the promises of a personal God, a sovereign ruler who assures us of the ultimate victory over all that oppresses us. In Jesus, that victory is sure. It's sure. It's a sure thing. It should be more sure to you as a follower of Jesus than the sun rising tomorrow. Do you hear me this morning? So in this moment, you, you need to be asking the question, do I believe this? Is this as true of a reality to me than the person sitting in front of me? So I know, but in this moment, right, how is this sermon practical, right? I, I started off by saying that James is really practical and to the point. And maybe in this moment, you're asking the question like, okay, so what does it look like to be patient in suffering, right? Well, I'm glad you asked. James, knowing that we probably asked that question, gets to it, gives us some examples. But before he does that, he talks about grumbling in verse 9. And at first, when you read this verse, right, about grumbling, it looks like it's an interruption to the flow of thought here, right? It looks like it's like, okay, you're talking about patience and suffering, James, but now all of a sudden you're talking about grumbling. But what James is doing here is brilliant because he's doubling down with one of the main uh, themes or motifs of this whole book, right? If you've been with us this summer, he's been talking about how we talk and why it matters, right? Our speech and since I've dedicated a whole sermon to this, you can go back and listen to it on the podcast. I'll simply say this. Grumbling against those who are close to us is particularly likely to occur when we're under pressure or facing difficult circumstances or going through a season of suffering, right? It's typical of us as human beings. We vent the pressure from a stressful work environment or from ill health on our close friends and family. I don't know about you, but that's true of my life. So it would be quite natural if James readers under the pressure of poverty and persecution would turn their frustrations on one another, right? Grumbling. It's a small thing, right? It looks like coming on a Sunday morning and complaining that coffee isn't good or... <laughs> Or like the service is too long or they didn't sing the songs I like. Or to nitpicking like the mistake that your spouse makes or your friend makes or taking offense to everything that everybody says to you or about you or whatever that looks like, right? Grumbling is just complaining. Grumbling is scorning. Grumbling is zinging people. Grumbling, uh, grumbling is griping. Grumbling is always finding fault. Grumbling is complaining all the time. I think you get the picture. I'll just say this. In God's eyes, these aren't small things. In God's eyes, like all our speech, all our grumblings, we're going to have to give account to everything that we say to him face to face. 
And if we're trying to create a community that is unified in this space, that encourages one another, we need to cut out grumbling at the root. And that root starts with us. It starts with us taking this word and applying it to our own lives individually. But going back to patience, right? What does patience look like? How do you live this out? James encourages all us readers of his writing that are, uh, that are facing suffering to look at the examples that have gone before us when he says, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of passion and mercy. There's so much to be said in this moment, right? We could go on and talk about the different prophets. We could talk about Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Job. We could take apart their lives and how faithfully they followed the call of God on their lives, no matter where it took them, no matter what suffering they had to endure, no matter how sometimes ridiculous it looked like to live out following God in their lifetime, right? Just take Job, for example, right? You read, you read about his life. But at first glance, I don't know about you, it doesn't look like he's a guy that didn't grumble, right? <laughs> the book, the passage, the story, a lot of times you don't think of him as the model of patience and faithfulness in the midst of suffering. Because the story depicts him as somewhat of this self-righteous type of guy, the self-righteous dude that is looking for God to answer him when it comes to the unjust suffering that he is facing. To give him an answer, which God doesn't do in the whole book. But as one commentator says, it's this. Job is no groveling, passive, unquestioning submission. Meaning, patience and suffering doesn't mean you can't question God. Doesn't mean you can't cry out to him. Right? Doesn't mean you can't express how you're feeling in that moment. But it's this, he says, Job struggled and questioned and sometimes even defied, but the flame of faith was never extinguished in his heart. His faith never gave away. He never walked away from his faith. He never doubted God. He stood firm in his faith. That is the example. They all stood firm in their faith. No matter how dire the situation got, no matter how bad the situation was, they trusted God. They held on. They believed in who he was. Because of his character, they kept following the call of God on their life because they believed he was compassionate. They believed that he was merciful, that they believed that he was slow to anger, abounding in love. <laughs> so what is James trying to say, right? Let me put it another way for you this morning. So me and my family, uh, we've been trying to do evening devotions now that all the kids can sit and listen. It's going okay. <laughs> um, I try to get through a verse, but I also started trying to read the story with them uh, called The Princess and the Goblin. Some of you might know the book. It's written by a guy named George MacDonald. Anybody know the book? It's 100 years old. This guy wrote it long time ago, but George MacDonald, uh, influenced writers like C.S. Lewis and J.R.O. Tolkien. And a lot of their writing came from the readings and the writings and stories that he wrote. And the story, uh, I'm going to spoil it for, for my kids if they're in the room right now. We, 
we got rid of the book. Like, let's just say the language was just like over their heads and we're like, okay, this is not working. So, but I'm going to spoil the, spoil the story for you too. Because in this book, uh, there's a little princess and she has a fairy grandmother. Okay. Not a fairy godmother, a fairy grandmother. The fairy grandmother at one point says, because there are goblins in this fairy tale, she says, you're in a great deal of danger. And when the goblins come to get you, I want you to come and find me. The little princess says, well, it's very hard to find you, grandmother. She says, the grandmother, well, here's what I want you to do. She brings out a little ball of thread. She gives the princess a ring, puts the ring of, on her finger, and attaches the thread to the ring. Then she puts the other end of the thread in her, the grandmother's cabinet. She says, now when you're in real trouble, take your ring off, put it under your pillow, and feel, and you'll be able to feel a thread. Nobody else will be able to feel it, but follow the thread to me. But I want you to know something. The thread may take you in directions and in places that seem to be absolutely dangerous, absolutely the wrong direction. But whatever you do, follow the thread. If you leave the thread, you'll be lost. But if you hold on to the thread, you will find me and I'll be at the other end. So the way the story goes, at one point, it happens, right? What her grandmother said happens. She's in danger. She puts the ring underneath her pillow and she feels, the feels for the thread. And every other time, right, this thread would just lead her from her room up the attic to her grandmother. But this time, the thread leads her out the door, takes her up a mountain, right into the den of the goblins. She says, I don't get this. She tries to go back, but every time you go back, the thread disappears. So she follows the thread in. And it turns out that she actually ends up rescuing one of the heroes in the book called Curdy. She didn't even know he was in danger, but Curdy says, how did you find me? She says, well, the thread. He can't feel the thread. So he's like, how did we get out of here? And she says, well, we follow the thread. At one point, she holds onto the thread and it seems to be going the wrong direction. Curdy says to her, you can't go that way. I tried to get out that way already. Nobody can get out that way. But she turns to him and says, I have to follow my thread. It doesn't matter how stupid it looks. It doesn't matter how much it doesn't make sense. I have to keep my finger on the thread. She starts crying because she's only eight years old. And he says, all right, all right. We'll follow the thread. They follow the thread. They get out. And finally, it brings her to her grandmother. This story in James is trying to say this to us this morning. The way to life, to true life, to abundant life, to real life, to both figure out your truest self and to live that out is the way through suffering, not around it. Suffering, although it doesn't come from God, is a thing that God uses to make us look more like Jesus. The epitome, the model of what it looks like to live out this life as a human being. Jesus and his example is the only way to make sense of this all. Jesus, who followed the thread to the cross, 
as it says in Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne. Why did Jesus endure such suffering? Why did he endure the horrors of the cross, died, was buried, rose again on the third day, and then ascended to the Father in heaven? Why? For the joy set before him. What joy? What was waiting for Jesus on the other side of the cross? The joy of seeing his people forgiven. The joy of seeing me forgiven. The joy of seeing you forgiven. That future allowed him to patiently endure the suffering that he went through. He is the ultimate example of what this looks like. He is what it looks like to live out patience in the midst of our suffering. But listen, patience doesn't start by you willing it to happen in your life. Doesn't start by looking at your own strength and trying to make it happen in your life. No, it starts in the place of surrender and repentance. It starts by turning from your sin and turning to Jesus, knowing that he dealt with all your sin, past, present, and future. That is how we endure in anticipation for waiting to God to come again. Because when we surrender, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And one of the fruit of the Spirit is patience. That's how we live out in patience. So here's my question as we close this morning. Have you made that decision? Have you surrendered your life to him?